Hello, and welcome back to our next episode of Private Markets Made Human, the podcast from Hamilton Lane that brings information and perspective from our greatest asset, our people. Today, we're speaking with my colleague, Drew Shart. Drew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Drew has been with Hamilton Lane since 2008, so coming up on 15 years here. He's a member of our Global Investment and Executive Committee. In addition, Drew is head of Global Investment Strategy, co-head of investments, and having spent a decade on the credit side at Hamilton Lane, uh, he continues to be heavily involved with our direct credit team. Drew, that sounds like a lot of responsibility. (laughs) Could you give the audience a sense of how you view your role at the firm and, and what it entails? Sure. Um, It usually means that I'm wandering the halls aimlessly with all those titles on a daily basis, looking looking for meetings to to go into. I think what it means as the co-head of investment and and firm's head of investment strategy is that I get to work and collaborate with lots of different groups of people within the organization, which is something I think I love doing and, and value immensely because I get to work with lots of talented and smart people thinking about the setup, not only of our investment structure, but where are trends, where are things going, what do we need to be thinking about operationally, staffing-wise. And so spending time across essentially all of those areas, thinking about what we need to do to be successful. That's great. And what it does is it makes you an expert on the topic that we're going to be covering today, which is interest rates. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I feel like I'm back in my uh, economics class uh, in, in undergrad. Exactly. So from where we sit, this topic has been dominating our conversations lately with clients, right? And after almost a decade plus of, of almost no attention, it really is top of mind you know, for investors, for consumers, the media headlines. Fact hot off the press today, you know, stocks surge as inflation eases. Woohoo. But it's, it's everywhere and there's a lot of eyes on it. But the, the real reason I want to dive into this topic is because of an opinion I actually heard in one of our client meetings. And it was said by one of our executives. He said, well, private equity doesn't really care about interest rates. And I really want to unpack that, Drew, because it's contrarian. And I'd love to get your house view on, on what it, if you think that's true. Uh, that's not a loaded question at all. Um, and so I absolutely think that interest rates are going to impact the deal making in the private market landscape and in any landscape, because when your cost of capital, a big part of that is interest rates and your cost of debt increases, it means things become more expensive. You can buy less and therefore typically valuations and asset prices must come down uh, when interest rates rise. And you've seen that whether you're talking about the private markets or obviously what's happened in the the public realm. I think maybe perhaps what that executive may have been suggesting about the private markets is that you know we've had a bit of a golden era over the last decade plus in the private markets fueled in many ways by low interest rates. And I think part of that commentary of why it doesn't matter is that General partners, capital raisers will still seek to raise capital and deploy capital. And in our world, that means being able to do it in different cycles and environments. And that's a whole nother topic we can continue to go into. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely dive into that. 
you know, you talk about how interest rates sort of have a ripple effect, but you know, we've been in an environment where there the there's been zero, you know, interest rates have been zero. Um, and how do you think that's helped to shape the last decade of the private markets in terms of strategy, in terms of, you know, allocation and evolution? And maybe we start with that question from the credit side. Yeah, I listen, I think it has given I mean, when interest rates in terms of the Fed and other central bankers are at zero, it's lots of liquidity, uh, you know, lower cost of capital, as, as we just described. And so that has meant just asset growth, uh, asset price appreciation, generally prices that have gone up and to the right pretty much for the last 14 years, which has meant by and large, pretty good performance across most or all asset classes. And so we all said we knew that wouldn't last forever, but suddenly when it changes, everybody, as you said, sort of freaks out when interest rates start to rise again, which inevitably they would have to do. On the credit side, that's an interesting area just because of some of the secular shifts that happened post the global financial crisis where you had a whole ecosystem of lenders, traditional banks, notably in the US and in Europe, where they were lending to private companies. They were lending pretty freely without a lot of oversight and regulation. The GFC changed all of that. And when that happened, it created a funding gap, particularly in the, the private realm, where the traditional lenders to that space essentially overnight went away. And so it created a massive opportunity for privately focused lenders. And so there's been a new ecosystem of you know private banks, essentially, the general partners and private credit strategies that have lent and built strategies around that dynamic of uh, a changing banking landscape. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, this this so-called cheap money led to a rise in many other, you know, changes within the the equity world, the private equity world, right? So we had record fundraising, we had strong rise in growth equity and and venture capital, all of those things that were sort of, you know, teed up and have continued to grow just because of the fact that that the rates have been so low for so long. Yeah, it, it's absolutely true that it cha- when rates are zero, you're very much in a risk-on mentality because you know the cost of making mistakes when you know the the capital, the money is essentially free um, is is and I'm tongue in cheek saying free, but it, it's very low rate environment. It's going to create different incentives, different sets of behaviors, growth at any cost, as you alluded to, which especially over the last five to seven years. That has occurred. It's worked out well in, in many cases, but when the music stops or the direction changes, then you start to have sort of a pivot in risk mentality and thinking about prices and you know where where things are likely to head because as rates rise, the economies, the demand side of the equation generally slows down. So you're going to a place we haven't been in 14 years. Yeah. Yeah. So Rates are low, we're humming along, extended bull run, bam, COVID hits. (laughs) We saw this huge shift in consumer behavior, right? So initially they retrenched, uh, then spending picked up in different ways. The one thing that didn't change, though, was that, you know, deal activity obviously didn't, didn't slow down. And then as almost in slow motion, 
we've globally sort of started to come out of that over the last year. And we've started to see the price of goods and services start to rise. We've seen, um, you know, hiring and, and wage pressure start to rise. And we started to see cracks in the armor, right? And you wrote this article in September of last year, September 2021, titled, well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> and you were really focusing on inflation at that time, which was fascinating, right? This was really the start of it. Could you tell us, you know, what was the theme you were trying to hit on then? This was almost, what, 14 months ago, 15 months ago. And the the key things that you essentially wanted the market and warn the reader about, you know, for the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah, it was essentially a little bit of what I said earlier of we all said we knew that the interest rate sort of music had to stop and go in the other direction. COVID and all the sort of stimulus capital that was focused on the consumer at some point as things sort of restarted out of COVID, of course, would and should drive the price of goods up. Not to mention when supply chains break down globally, it generally makes things more expensive. And so as all of these sort of perfect storm of inflationary pressures came together, I think you saw a world where people were a bit panicked about what lay ahead because it wasn't easy to unpack those uncertainties. And you've seen that economically, geopolitically, that volatility in the market has largely been reflective of persistent views of, of uncertainties on the horizon. And so the article was very much saying some of this we, we, we knew would happen and can plan for. Other pieces are still going to linger in terms of not always knowing the answer and what lay ahead. But generally speaking, I think what our view was is that if you look at fundamentals of the consumer, fundamentals of businesses in terms of balance sheets, earnings, free cash flows, things still looked pretty good. And so while there's a lot of uncertainty out there, we knew rates were going to have to rise at some point. The question is one of magnitude and for how long. And I think our general view when we wrote that piece was that rates would likely peak over the next sort of 12 months and that gradually they would come down, uh, but sort of in a range in the medium term that was elevated above where the Fed and others would like sort of long-term inflation to be, and therefore rates would likely remain higher for a bit longer. And, you know, it's fortuitous we're recording this. It's November 10th, which is also <laughs> my daughter's birthday. Happy birthday, Lucy. We got some CPI and Fed data where it's one data point, so it does not make a trend, but you've started to see in the October CPI report in the U.S., that not only is the headline inflation number come down, that core basket of inflation, so less food and energy prices, has also started to abate a bit. And so I think what you'll end up seeing happen is that investors, consumers, businesses, not that the world isn't still going to have uncertainties, risks, and volatility, but the biggest risk is inflation and runaway inflation. We saw that in the late 70s and what happened in the 80s. And if people are comfortable that that you know, most draconian scenarios behind us, then I think you'll start to see things um, start to go back to the new normal, wherever that may be in terms of asset prices and where values of companies, businesses, et cetera, lie. So maybe said less eloquently, you were saying 
sit down, put on your seatbelt, keep your hands on the wheel. We're going to navigate this all together and we're going to figure it out, private markets, right? <laughs> it felt like the world was ending. You had healthcare crisis, you had rising rates and things we hadn't seen in 40 years. Um, but I think, you know, our view was relax. The, the world's not ending. It doesn't mean there's not going to be challenges and you don't need to think about strategies and things of how you might pivot in, in a rising rate or, you know, persistently higher inflationary environment. But stay the course has generally been our, our message all along. Right. So today, you know, input costs have risen. The Fed has hiked rates. So we, we're in this environment. We're, we're here, right? And in the private markets, I guess I just wanted to get your view. Do you think our GP partners are positioned for this in, you know, this current environment where, you know, rates are fluctuating, I guess is the right word? They are in terms of when we buy assets in the private realm, we know we're going to, you know, you sort of have to live with it for the next five to seven years. And so as we put together transactions or as these managers think about, you know, the types of levels of debt that they want to place on these businesses, they understand that the cost of that debt has now gone up pretty meaningfully. Um, they understand that, as I said before, some of those risks, uncertainties aren't likely to dissipate anytime soon. And so you need to make sure that sort of at entry and at the buy, having to live through the next five, six, seven years, which is typically how long you hold an asset, that the company needs to have wherewithal, not just from a, a business and operational perspective, but also just in the ability to to use debt that has higher interest rates. And so I think we see most people in the private markets be very thoughtful around that. And the best evidence is if you look at some of the leverage levels, even through this last boom time where everything was sort of up until the right, up into the right until recently, the leverage levels that, you know, for example, the buyout managers were putting on businesses was sort of 50% loan to value. And pre-GFC, those numbers were 70, 75%. So I think managers generally had stayed disciplined, realizing things would likely pivot on an interest rate front. And even more so now, they can bake that into new deals when they start to happen again. But obviously, there's still there's been quite a slowdown just given what's happened with rates and, and some of the other elements. Yeah, that and, you know, GPs are really, if you think about it, and I'm like to get your take on this. I mean, a lot of the businesses in our world are service businesses. And so when you think about the effects of being able to pass on costs and not having such an impact to the underlying consumer as, you know, if, if you were in restaurants or things like that, other commodity linked businesses, it really bodes well for the type of environment we've been in and the type of environment that we could be in for the next few years. So if you're an LP, let's put our LP hat on here mm -hmm. for a second. You probably, I'm generalizing here, we're very much foot on the gas over the last few years in terms of allocation. Every manager was back in market last year. We're in a different environment today. <laughs> a lot of that capital has been spent. There's valuation challenges. We've got interest rates. Everyone's sort of maybe thinking about putting the pause button on. Like, What would you say to them in terms of how an LP should think about investing in this, you know, call it environment? I mean, Long-term asset class, obviously, but just where would you sort of, what advice would you give them in terms of where to lean in a little bit right now? Yeah, listen, life is very hard if you're an LP today for all of those reasons you mentioned that 
for the last cycle, it was you were deploying capital in pretty much any asset class you did pretty well in. On the private equity side, managers were coming back not only more frequently, but doubling, tripling the sizes of their funds. And they could because the performance was there. And a lot of that, as we've talked about, is was fueled by lots of liquidity and low rates. And today, they're almost in the inverse of that, where rates have gone up, the public markets have corrected, the private markets have sort of flattened and come down a bit, but not quite as much. We can talk about why that is. But generally speaking, as a limited partner focusing on you know all areas of investing, you work more capital constrained partially due to the denominator effect with your private equity exposure. So those same managers who were all out fundraising and many of which still are, now are coming back to that same LP base who's been there to double and triple their funds each of the last you know two to three funds. All of a sudden they're saying, you know, no moss. I, I, I can't do it. We're over allocated just given what's happened with public market corrections. And so it's a challenging place to be because especially in the private world, limited partners don't like to lose relationships or have a fear of saying no to a general partner because maybe that impacts their ability to continue to invest or see co-investment deal flow, whatever it is. And so it's a dramatically different world today where they're having to deal with the reality of lower asset prices. I think the hard part about it and what the data tells us, though, is that if you can stomach it and, and sort of can get out of the psyche of, you know, as an investor of wanting to pull back when things are at their worst, the data tells you this is absolutely the time to stay the course because timing the markets is very difficult. And if you can't do it perfectly, generally speaking, through cycles like this historically, it's been one of the best attributes of the private markets because they're long-term and illiquid. It has saved the investor from themselves of wanting to take out or the ability to take out capital where they can do it in liquid public markets. And when you haven't done that, you haven't pulled out, then the recovery and the, the sort of pivot from the downturn actually looks quite compelling. And so it's challenging. And we think that you know investors will continue to be thoughtful about staying the course, not timing the market where they can. But it's not an easy decision when you're over allocated or on paper have to respond to boards, trustees, endowments, and your constituents of why your allocation to a certain area has spiked so dramatically. Yeah. What about, so if I'm a CIO listening in and, I, you know, words like stagflation and recession, I know we're already in a recession in other parts of the world, you know, in the U.S., I'll, I'll borrow a quote from Torsten Slock from Apollo who said yesterday that this may be one of the most anticipated recessions ever, kind of like a, like a slow clap or something. <laughs> Does that change your view on um, where we pivot or where the opportunities lie in today's market? No, I think it's been pretty well telegraphed in terms of the Fed. And that's, I think, a lesson just, you know, historically speaking, in the late 70s in the lead up to, I'm sorry, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here, but in the late 70s in the lead up to sort of the hyperinflation of the 80s, the Fed had started to raise rates several times in the mid to late 70s because of the deficits they were running, you know, the post-Vietnam sort of economic era. And because they would start and then stop and then go down and then back up again several times very quickly, inflation never really got under control. And this time, bringing it back to today, 
I think what the Fed and the world's other central bankers have said is, we're going to do whatever it takes to get inflation under control because the lessons in history of the past have shown us that if you don't do that, that's when real collapse-ish type issues, collapse-ish, is that a word, <laughs> uh, start to happen. And to Torsten's point, I, I, everyone understands that another sort of impact or a direct impact of rising rates is to cool the economy, to slow growth. And so the question I think will become if today's sort of data point continues to be a trend and everyone is more comfortable that the worst of inflation is behind us and heading in the right direction, then I think the topic will pivot to exactly what you said. How much will growth slow globally and from a macro and GDP perspective? You know, how persistent will the Fed and others be in their posture to be more hawkish? And when will they sort of have this pivot to neutral or potentially even dovish strategies? Because the recessionary piece is almost a given, but what will impact the magnitude, the depth of that recession is really how the Fed now balances a slowing economy with not sort of overdoing it with interest rates and tightening and cooling that economy. Because as we talk about it, inflation and interest rate impact are lagging indicators. So the sort of actions taken over the last several months haven't fully sort of run their course in terms of GDP and demand side pieces that impact that recessionary picture. So in a world where interest rates in the future might straddle this, I don't know, people say two, call it two to 5%, right? What, what do you think that means for private market returns across the various strategies? Do you think they're coming down? Do you think we can continue to live in some of these glory days? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think statistically speaking, and I don't want to be Danny Downer here, but um, returns have to come down, period, full stop, across most asset classes. That's just inevitable. If you look at the last five years and line them up against the last 40, you know, you would have seen, for example, on the private market side, four of the last five being at, at all time, they'd be ranked number one through four. And I think the fifth year is like number eight in that ranking of the, the top returning year. So I think given where returns have been, they're likely to come down. But in our world, nothing's absolute. It is relative. And what the data and history have shown us is that when there is more pedestrian public market return environments, the relative outperformance, i.e. how much you could get by putting a dollar into private strategies versus public, actually outperforms on a sort of basis point or percentage gap, though is wider in these types of pedestrian public market return environments. And again, it doesn't mean that public or private market returns won't come down. And just back to your question of what does it mean for GPs and how they're thinking of the world, I think it's not all that new. And we've been thinking we were late cycle probably for the last five to six years, even before COVID, that it just reinforces the value of the long-term focus governance structure in the private markets. You can't rely on purchase price multiple to drive your returns and your performance. You have to have other levers of value creation operationally using M&A, a real thesis behind an asset, an industry, a playbook, if you will, to create long-term returns, it cannot be buy low and sell high because that 
clearly is not likely to happen, especially what's happened in rates and, and sort of valuation movements. That's great. I like what you're saying here. It's it's there's plenty of things to bear watching, you know, look for trends, not not at a single data point. So as I conclude, and knowing all of these great things that you've said to us, I want to come back to my initial question. I'm going to beat you a little bit. Yep. And maybe I'll rephrase it. But given now what, what you've told us about how private markets can adjust and perform in a higher rate environment, should private equity investors really focus so much attention on interest rates? <laughs> Not at all. Ignore <laughs> it. Totally. <Yes. laughs> I wanted you to say no. I was dying for you to say no. I Listen, unless you think the world's going to end, which I don't think it is, and you want to go to, you know, gold, cash, and guns. If you are staying invested, if you are not timing the markets, I think staying the course, being thoughtful in preparing for strategies that do well in a rising rate environment, things like we talked about private credit, 95% of that asset class is floating rate. So as rates go up, your yields and returns go up. I also think if you look at when asset prices correct, if you have capital to invest at the new normal valuations, you can make some some pretty good returns for the same quality asset that last year was trading two to three turns higher. Now the challenge is the sellers don't necessarily quite want to sell and the buyers all want to buy. And so until that buyer-seller disconnect abates a bit, you may see transaction volumes remain low, but this too shall pass. And the new normal of interest rates, again, if with the worst put likely behind us in terms of inflation, settles into that mid-single digit range, that is still historically speaking at the low end or you know, middle to low end of long-term interest rates. And so the private markets, other asset classes have all continued to exist. Some thrive more than others. And so the world will continue to spin, I guess. And so therefore, maybe none of us should really be all that worried. Yes. Or go all into real assets, which is a topic for a future podcast. And we will go there in the future. <laughs> Not trying to steal anybody's thunder. No. All right. Well, thank you, Drew. This has been great. And as you said, you know, volatility, good or bad, creates opportunity. But um, keep your hands on the wheel, right? Exactly. If you want more information, uh, Drew also just recently wrote an article on valuations called What It's Worth. So check that out on our website. And Hamilton Lane also provides weekly macro insights from our strategist, Blaine Rollins, through his weekly research briefing. So please check those out. Thanks for joining us. 